Okay, last week, <clears throat> we looked at verses 6 and 7 and took a, a little time to appreciate uh, that the way we begin in the faith is the way we continue in the faith. Um, because the gospel is simple, it's my contention, and I think you'd all agree with me, that uh, the simplicity of the gospel makes it such that people of all ages, ethnicities, educational backgrounds, either of the two genders, any economic status, um, anybody can be saved from the curse and the consequence of sin. Amen? It doesn't require a college degree. Um, it doesn't re require a high school diploma. It really it doesn't even require literacy um, to make out these truths because they are so <clears throat> obvious in the in the in the context of the human experience. Uh, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do. Um, I. I uh, I find my life is marked by the consequences of doing things that immediately after I do them, I regret. Okay, that's fine. I'm the only one. Um, <clears throat> I sometimes hurt people, and it frustrates me because it wasn't my intention. Um, my actions create trouble and sadness. My inaction creates anxiety and anger. My habits are harmful, <clears throat> often short-sighted or self-destructive. Um, I sometimes try to project strength or attractiveness or wit that I don't actually possess. There are things broken in my life which I don't know how to repair. There are things happening in my life that I didn't anticipate and cannot control. This, isn't, this is not a confession. This is me saying things that are true of all of you. So please don't sit there like, wow, he's really a mess. <laughs> there are consequences in my life which I must endure that frighten me. Or at least things that I suspect might be consequences. There are events every day in the world at large that also threaten and frighten me. All human beings can identify with fear, shame, and guilt. All human beings. Um, even the, the most unredeemable psychopath. As long as there are forces more powerful than us, and there always will be, we will contend with fear. As long as there are expectations which we do not or cannot meet, let me say that again, as long as there are expectations which you do not or cannot meet, did not because you didn't bother to, could not because you lack the ability, as long as there are expectations which you do not or cannot meet, you will contend with shame. As long as we have selfish ambition, we will deal with guilt. That's what these things produce. Beyond those 16 facts that I just mentioned, there's also <clears throat> the gnawing hunger in every human soul to worship something. This is not how the world recognizes it. 
and you've seen all of my psychology degrees, but I try to come up with a new way to illustrate this every time I mention it, and this is the way I've chosen this time. There is in every human being the gnawing desire to worship something. There's two ways I can prove it. You have obsessive, compulsive people. They come up with routines designed to offset so-called bad luck or juju. Uh, like lock and unlock the door multiple times. Turn the lights off and then turn them back on and off five more times because six is a good number. I don't have anybody in mind, but I, I think probably all of us have a little bit of this in it. Like, it's my parking spot. Yeah. You repeat a phrase over and over, either out loud or in your own head, because you just have to. Failing to uphold the rituals will result in disaster. Not sure what exactly, but it'll be bad. These behaviors flow, at least in part, from a natural desire to subdue the environment as an act of obedience to the original design. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is the squeakiest chair I've ever encountered in my life. Why don't you just move over one? Perfect, thank you. It's my son, so I can make him do that. If any of you are afraid, like, don't move. Obedience is an act of worship, right? So it makes sense that we long for dominion. If God charges mankind in Genesis 1, 27 and 28 to subdue the earth and rule over it, but that design for mankind has been frustrated by the fall and a corrupted nature, the desire is still there and it's going to express itself in some corrupted way. Let me turn the lights on and off. One, two, three, five, six. Ah. We feel it in our personality disorders too, right? By tending to be very suggestible and quick to respond to fads. You know somebody like that? I'm, I, don't, I don't struggle with this so much anymore. I did when I was like 14. There's some pictures of me wearing things, uh, and I'm just, I look at them and I think, hmm. Now, putting on a show of exaggerated symptoms of weakness or illness. Displaying excessive, shallow, flash emotions. Engaging in attention-seeking behaviors. Constantly performing. Take a peek at social media if you want an illustration of this phenomenon. Experiencing fleeting moods, opinions, or beliefs. Like everybody dabbles in this stuff. You don't have to have a diagnosis we, if you're getting nervous. We all dabble in it. Uh, 
needing others to witness our emotional displays for validation or attention. Come on, you're mad different in the car than when somebody's watching, right? You're like, you gotta like put on more of a dramatic flair. These tendencies flow at least in part from a desire to be deeply known. Being merely noticed is a sorry substitute, but it'll do. In the absence of the right way to be deeply known, which is by being known by my creator, having subjected the truth in unrighteousness, I may be merely noticed. So creatures which long to worship, long to be known, long to be in fellowship with the one who made them, instead contend with perpetual fear, shame, and guilt. The gospel teaches that this reality exists because our nature is corrupted by sin due to the fall of our original parents. Fellowship with God, which was disrupted by sin and the fall, gets broken And then if you read the biblical history, what unfolds then is 4,000 years of kind of chaos where nothing is working quite the way it's supposed to until you come to this moment where that creator against whom mankind had sinned steps into the mess as a human being, provides the obedience that humanity cannot provide, pays the price for disobedience that humanity cannot pay, and thereby supplies the means for us to be delivered from fear, shame, and guilt, and restored in fellowship with himself. This is so simple, any human being that manages to listen to the whole thing can intellectually comprehend it. You are inadequate. You feel it in your bones. And God is saying that feeling is not inaccurate. What you're missing is not self-improvement. What you're missing is not some drug. What you're missing is not all that the world has to offer in the way of riches and popularity. What you're missing is not a religious system whereby you can put God into your debt. What you are missing is communion with the one who made you for communion. That's the gospel, right? The cost of admission into fellowship with the one who created you is twofold. You must repent and you must believe. That's it. Repent. Like recognize the destructive nature of your sin. You've got to be willing to admit, all right, so looking at my track record and the swath of destruction behind me, this is you, not just me, Looking at that, I can see that even me at my best, making the best possible decisions, it's not good. It's not good enough. There's still harm being done to me and to those around me. So I need to stop doing that, whatever that is. Well, God lays out in clear terms what that is that you need to lay down. It's your pursuit of your own exaltation. It's your sin. It's suppressing the truth, which is the creator made you and worshiping instead the creature that was made. Turn away from that. Turn instead to communion with God. 
through faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he is real and that he is, all that he has said about himself is true through prayer and fellowship with his people and marinating in biblical truth, seek to know him better. Any human being who chooses to exercise such faith is welcomed into shared life with Jesus Christ. Anyone, from the worst murderer to the youngest child, all people who trust Jesus have their sins completely forgiven by him and are given the promise of eternal life when they die or he returns. What we saw last week was that as simple as it is to become a child of God, that is how we continue to be children of God. There is no graduate level of Christianity. Repentance and faith are the central business of the Christian. Doesn't matter how long you've been saved. Today you must get up resolved to believe and repenting for your unbelief. We should certainly grow deeper in our understanding of Jesus and our appreciation for him and for all that the Bible describes of the character of God, but we never grow beyond repentance and faith. Thus we come to the danger, Colossians 2, 8. See to it that no one t- <laughs> takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So uh, I'm going to stop there because I have to. In grade school, I... I'm sharing this because I'm assuming I'm not the only, it wasn't just my class. We weren't like selected by the government, uh, the federal government to be the only third and fourth grade classes that got exposed to this. But we learned in grade school, I hope you can identify about kidnappers through what I'm assuming were mandatory uh, film strips that were shown during the course of the educational day. Uh, We learned that these kidnappers offer candy, Um, ask for help finding their puppies or lure children into their dungeons with popsicles. Um, They're so ubiquitous in the 80s that it was necessary for the Department of Education to spend untold thousands of dollars producing these cheesy, um, like poorly acted over-dramatizations with this warbling music in the background and some trustworthy narrator Johnny shouldn't do whatever, right? And the takeaway was simple. It made it super simple for us. Don't talk to strangers. That was the rule. No matter what the rules of propriety which had existed in this country for the 40 or 50 years before that, a new age had dawned. Kidnappers were hiding in panel vans with painted windows from coast to coast. And any child not wise to their schemes, would be captured. Children, therefore, had an obligation. Treat all unknown adults as though they are attempting to snatch you away to their horrible cellar. None of these videos ever got to the point I was most curious about, which was, what is it exactly that these kidnappers want with me? The takeaway to dutiful children, however, was clear. So the last of Generation X was trained to be rude. It was our responsibility. Our lives depended on it. You guys, you remember this? Yeah, all right, Jackie, thank you. 
Paul's warning to the Colossians is nowhere near this broad, but the language conjures up the same old feelings in me. See to it that no one takes you captive. Right? I don't want to get captured. So to begin with, Christian, you have some obligation to see to your own well-being. Do not be taken captive. The word here... I'm going to see if I can pronounce this. I just wrote it out in the Greek. Ready? For captive. Salagegeo. Yeah, there's two G's with a vowel in between. I don't know how those people even talk. Sulagogeo. It appears nowhere else in scripture. This is the only place. You will find it nowhere else in your Bible. But ancient writings elsewhere help us with the meaning. Do not become the spoil of somebody else's slave trade. See to it that no one takes you captive. All right? Christian, listen to God's word. All right? If the devil cannot convince you that the whole thing is made up by men who were on mushrooms, he will happily settle for leading you astray after you've made your profession of faith. How does it happen? What tools does the deceiver use? Well, if you look at verse 8, Paul mentions two possibilities, philosophy and empty deceit. Or maybe it's one described two ways. So what are we doing here besides sleeping? Uh, Or almost like you're right on the edge, and I appreciate you staying with us. Um, What are we doing here, and what will we do on Tuesday night when we gather together as a small group? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to take care. We're going to see to it that nobody takes us captive, right? Now, if you're like me, one of the things that that you do to make sure that nobody takes you captive is when somebody is preaching especially if they're attractive, so you're not in as much danger as you could be. When somebody is preaching, you have to be careful to listen to what they say and see if it jives with what you know, right? Okay, meaning what you know from the Bible, for those of you who were not looking when I held it up in dramatic fashion to capture your attention. What are we not doing? We're not putting our heads in the ground. We're not cloistering. We're not bandwagoning. We're not building a commune. See, I brought up the 80s don't talk to strangers videos for two reasons. First, because it's exactly what popped into my head when I began to study the passage. Second, because some Christians, in an effort to put Paul's instructions into practice, have wrongly concluded that the only way to avoid being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit is to reject all interaction with the world around. Don't talk to strangers is weird counsel given by grown-ups who feared kids were too dumb to know the difference between a friendly salutation and an invitation into someone's dungeon. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit translates very nicely into, listen, I'm going to start over because everybody's worried about whether Matt's going to take the phone call. (laughs) 
See to it that nobody takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit translates very nicely into our church is the only one doing it right. And then we can spin the top of religious superiority with the Bible underneath keeping it going. Do you see the danger? Don't talk to strangers. Well, what if you have a newspaper route and you've got to collect? Paul is not advocating for denominations and associations here. He's advocating for Christians to apply some discernment. The reason I keep bringing us back again and again and again and again and again to the simplicity of the gospel is so that when we come across something convoluted, confusing, or concerning, masquerading as deeper spiritual knowledge or a new perspective for the church, like the hair on the back of our neck. Well, those of you that have hair on the back of your necks, it will stand up. You'll get that weird sense. Like, what was that? That doesn't sound quite right. Like, we need to have our, our awareness up all, all the time. But that does not mean that we need to hide out and you know, buy some land and... All right, so what a philosophy and empty deceit look and sound like. It's difficult. It's like, it's, it's almost like Paul was writing his letters to specific people and didn't have in mind that 2,000 years later some bald guy would be preaching in a high school auditorium. Right? So he doesn't go into detail about what the heresy is that he's trying to refute. And it's difficult for us to reconstruct from contrast what it is that he was dealing with. And I'm not sure how blessed any of you would be by me droning on about the worship of the goddess Sibyl um, and, and uh, how, how the practices of that cult in that area at the time was marked by ritual cleansing and a bull's blood, uh, interpretive dance ecstatic visions given in the midst of frenzied uh, prophetic rapture. Then there's this distorted Phrygian version of uh, Christianity known as Montanism, um, which originated in the same geographical area. So if you look from 30,000 feet, here's what you've got. You've got an occult religion, um, the worship of the goddess Cybele, and in the same area, you've got the young Christian church, which springs up in the area of, of Phrygia, where they also were kind of preoccupied with these uh, ecstatic visions, prof pr prophetic utterances, interpretive dances, uh, severe treatment of the body as a means for uh, getting rid of, of sin from the self. They believed that the gospel was insufficient for ongoing Christianity. Like it was enough to get you saved, but it wasn't enough to keep you uh, humming along. And then there were additional blessings required to separate the real Christians from the riffraff. There were things you had to do to make sure that you stood out. Pay no attention to how much like oneness Pentecostalism this all sounds. Lest any of you be deceived, I am aware Yeah, he, I always thought he might be a Montanist. I am aware that Montanism didn't emerge until around 150 CE or AD, whichever one you're more comfortable with. So I'm not implying that Paul was combating Montanism. 
What I'm saying is it's interesting in the same geographical area, 200, 250, 300 years later, the then Catholic Church was combating this exact stuff that Paul ends up talking about. It's almost like he was trying to head it off at the pass. Um, my point is that perhaps some early like iteration of Montanism was going on in, in Colossae. Hopefully you caught my obvious reference to the problem. Uh, philosophy and empty deceit look and sound like anything which suggests that faith in Jesus Christ alone is insufficient for, for salvation and the promise of eternal life. I'll say it again, because that's like a lot. It was a long sentence, right? Philosophy and empty deceit look and sound. Philosophy and empty deceit equals anything which suggests that faith in Jesus Christ alone is insufficient for salvation. When I say insufficient for salvation, I'm talking about the initiation of salvation and the 30 years later salvation. If you have to add something to Jesus in order to get it done, it's philosophy and empty deceit. See to it that nobody captures you in their slave trade. To prove it, Paul goes on, According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So, human tradition, elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. Anybody here ever heard of contemplative prayer? How about centering prayer? How about spiritual formation? So, Chuck DeGroat. Uh, who's famous for the book When Narcissism Comes to Church and being on the History of Mars Hill podcast that Christianity Today produced a couple years back, um, mentions at one point during that podcast that he became the pastor of spiritual formation at this, I don't remember the name of the West Coast Church. Um, let me ask you a different question. I was just, I'm just trying to like tie some threads for some of you. So you'd be like, oh, that guy, Okay. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't create it. It was somebody else. Um, but let me ask you a different question. Does meditation, listen, listen. Does meditation in an altered state of consciousness sound biblical? Um, does the Bible anywhere command repeating the same phrase over and over and over again or the same word over and over and over again until your mind somehow mystically disengages so that you can really hear from God? Another question, which is more biblical? Biblical doctrine or your own experience? Which is more useful, disengaging your mind so that you can have a mystic experience or engaging your mind in order to talk to God? I'm not a fundamentalist, all right? So don't back away slowly. I'm not. I do believe that the subjective experiences that you have are integral to your own walk with God. I cannot live vicariously through the people in scripture or the people around me. I have to live my own life and have my own experience. I have to have my own walk. I cannot have life and have it abundantly while robotically mimicking only what I see obviously prescribed in the scriptures. However, 
Christianity mixed with mysticism usually results in people elevating their subjective experiences to the point where they go beyond what the Bible clearly teaches. Guess what happens then? Guess what happens then? Well, human experience becomes tantamount to the scripture, if not paramount over the scripture. And you start hearing things like, well, I feel like, guess what happens then? Things start getting added to the gospel. We start chasing experiences instead of knowing God. Like what happened at summer camp? Those of you who went. You had this experience and you were never going to be the same until about two days after you got back home. And that's not, that's not to poo-poo summer camp. I think it has its place. I think those, those retreats from the norm in order to kind of reset yourself, I think that's a great idea. I'm all for, like I was talking to Lee before service, even Jesus withdrew to a desolate place periodically. I'm not saying camp is evil. It's adding things to the gospel. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the experience becomes the thing that you're dependent on instead of the scriptures, instead of the person and work of Jesus Christ. What happened to promise keepers? You guys remember promise keepers back in the day? And hey, I'm not saying it was all bad, all evil. I'm a fundy. No, it's not where I'm coming from at all. I'm just saying, if the experience of being in a stadium with a, a, you know, 20, 30,000 men worshiping God is what got you to get serious about y- your pursuit of Jesus Christ, wonderful. Bless God that you had that experience. But now if you need it in order to keep going, you're adding things to the gospel. What is the danger of subjective experience becoming more important to you than what God has revealed in his own word? What's the danger? Well, I could fill the next hour with examples from my own life. Um, Let me just say one. When when your own personal experience takes first place, you begin to conduct yourself based on what makes you feel good instead of what God has said is good. When your own experience takes first place in your heart and mind, you will conduct yourself based upon what feels right instead of what you know is right. The end of that is often apostasy. I cannot count the number of people over the years who at uh, at one point I thought we were walking in fellowship and now they no longer believe. I'm not going to bring those people up because maybe they hear this sermon somehow. So I'll give you... Uh, Four examples, not from my life directly, but that I've been indirectly impacted by. In 1995, 96, I think, uh, I stumbled across the band Jars of Clay. Um, And I was like, wow, this is way cooler than Sandy Patty. Right? (laughs) Or Twyla Paris. Like, I think these guys are it. And if you listen to the lyrics, it's like, it's good songwriting. Um, right, the, everybody knows the song Flood from Jars of Clay from back in the night. Well, I knew the whole album, front and back, inside and out, and, and every uh, album after that. So Dan Heseltine, the lead singer and songwriter for Jars of Clay, in 2014 sent out a series of tweets basically allying himself with the LGBTQ movement and since then has become pro-choice and now supports transgender 
ism. Like, what? Uh, Jennifer Knapp uh, wrote the coolest version of Jesus Loves Me you will ever hear. Awesome voice, too. Really cool character. Uh, She's a lesbian now. Like, Cademan's Call, the best Christian music ever written. From just from a songwriter perspective, their album, 40 Acres, changed my teenage years. Derek Webb has completely rejected the faith. You go listen to that album. He has better theology than I do today, and he's rejected the faith. Switchfoot, same thing. So there's four of my favorite bands when I was a teenager, as far as Christians goes. And they've all gone, gone the way of the apostate, in my opinion. Now, that is not me judging them unto eternity and me saying, should I ever, ever listen to them again? No, I still listen to them. I love them. If I ever met any of those brothers or sisters, I would, like, I would weep and plead with them to come back to simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. But I know what happened. Not one of them can point to how the Bible changed their minds. All of them point to how their feelings changed. So what's the danger here? When does subjective experience usurp the biblical gospel? How do you know this is happening? I think there's three steps. It might just be that I like coming up with three steps because I'm obsessive compulsive. (laughs) But I think there's three. First, you care less and less about what God's word says. So you'll, you'll know this is happening when reading and meditating on your Bible aren't a priority. Eventually, you can take it or leave it. Two, you start caring to an unhealthy degree what other people think. And this is like... You know you care too much what other people think when you adjust how you speak, what you say out loud to accommodate the culture around you. And oh, thank God you have a pastor who works in the corporate workaday world because I'm living it Monday through Friday. I'm right there with you. I know what we're up against. Dancing this dance, walking this tightrope of I'm not going to lie. I will not lie and say that I approve of something that I don't approve of. What if it costs me my job? It doesn't matter. I'll still have my integrity. That's worth more than my house, right? I'll still have the pleasure of my Jesus walking with me if everybody else forsakes me. You adjust how you speak, what you say to accommodate the culture around you. This is because in the absence of the firm foundation of relationship with Jesus, you have to try to find safety somewhere. So you find it by being accommodating to other people. So step one was, you care less and less what the Bible says. You'll know that's happening because you're not that interested in reading it or meditating on it. Step two is, you start caring to an unhealthy degree what other people think. Step three, truth becomes malleable. What is or is not has to be. What is or is not must be entirely subjective. It has to be entirely subjective because you've given up the plumb line. 
There's nothing else to decide outside of you what's truth anymore. So now you get to decide inside of you what's truth. So the truth today is, my name's Jamie, and I'm going to wear a dress. What? How dare you uh, criticize my truth, your truth? You're, you were born a boy. You don't, I mean, you can wear a dress, I, whatever, but you didn't just become a lady because you decided to do this more. <gasps> yes, I did. But this is the world we live in. The outrage that comes from having the audacity to say, no, 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 no. Truth exists outside of me. I don't get to decide what's true. It's already been decided. Nothing will set the world against you as quickly as that. Oh my goodness. I'm going to hold that baby. Is it because I'm yelling? I need to simmer down. I'm sorry, Grace. Uh, your conviction becomes whatever brings you the most pleasure or satisfaction. So, whether it's astrology or ayahuasca, what you do is pursue the thing that brings you the most personal satisfaction that you're still exercising that religious muscle. The problem is those elemental principles of the world take the place where the gospel used to fill. Yeah. Understand I am not, nor is Paul, talking about those who are lost. He is talking about and warning Christians. Add nothing to Jesus. Add nothing to Jesus or you will no longer have Jesus. You will have something else in his place. That's what happens. So, back to verse 8. We're almost done for what it's worth. If it's any comfort at all to you, Grace. See to it, no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So Paul mentions it again, right? We saw this in chapter 1, verse 19. In him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So now Paul goes back to this reality because it isn't really something we can ever get past. If you think about it, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus Christ. You can't get past that. So... Uh, the person you see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to indwell. Hebrews 1.3 says he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has as he as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So this is who you're studying when you open your Bible. I want to know what God's like. Go look at Jesus. This is who you are praying to when you pour your heart out. I want to know if God hears me. Well, look at Jesus. Who was he not interested in? 
the healthy, the ones who were fine. Come to me, he said, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, so lay yours down. This is the one who promised, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. This is the one who promised, they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This is the one who promised, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Paul brings this up again. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. What on earth could you want that Jesus can't accomplish? What on earth could you need that Jesus can't accomplish? What do you fear that Jesus, the head of all rule and authority, cannot stand over and destroy with a breath if he so chooses? No, we're out of time, right? We get, like, we got to leave it here for now. So quick review. Uh, first, don't be taken captive. We're surrounded by a culture that takes for granted that Christianity is nonsense. Amen? One of my favorite TikTokers uh, is a guy. He teaches uh, ancient languages at BYU. And, but... All right, so it's a double-edged sword, right? I love it when he takes apart the nonsense that some Christians have come up with by reading their English Bible and not taking into consideration that, you know, like, it's a gr like I'm, I'm here for the ESV. It's a great translation. But even if there's a couple of things where I'm like, eh, it's not exactly what it says, Right? Sometimes Christians don't know that, and so they build these whole philosophies based on what they've read here without ever doing a little bit of like the original language study and goes off the rails quickly. Um, and then they go on TikTok to talk about what they've come up with. You sweet little lambs. This guy takes them apart. Because he, he's, he's just, he knows the language. And I, I enjoy... Uh, hearing him explain in very robotic fashion, this is actually what that says. And the problem is he also doesn't believe that Paul wrote 1st, 2nd Timothy or Titus. He's pretty sure most of the Paulian epistles are a forgery. Like, Paul's sexual ethic doesn't apply to uh, America in 2023. Like, there's, like it's a double-edged sword. Right? We, we live in a culture that assumes what we believe is nonsense. Don't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. What does that mean? That means I have to cling to this tenaciously. I got to obey what he said or else I prove I don't really believe what he promised, right? Second, I mean, like, of course, lost people work overtime to make the Bible seem silly or outdated or inapplicable to our enlightened state. I get that. I'm not even mad. You just be careful. Second, reject any source of salvation except Jesus and the simple gospel of repentance and faith. Uh, I'm going to say it again. Reject any source of salvation except Jesus and a simple gospel of repentance and faith. Reject it. This is my advice. 
If you're like, this guy's a fundamentalist. I'm never coming back. I promise you this. If I am a fundamentalist, I'm a fundamentalist who weeps literally on Saturday nights sometimes putting these messages together because I can't get to your heart the way I'd like to. To make you see how much God loves you and how much Jesus gave in order that he might redeem you. And to convince you to hold fast to just the gospel. Reject any source of salvation except Jesus and the simple gospel of repentance and faith. Third, embrace with your whole heart. This is it. We're done after this sentence. Embrace with your whole heart the one who made the stars yet dwelt on earth to redeem you. I lied, we're not done. I'm just going to review them again real quick. First, don't be taken captive. Second, reject any source of salvation except for Jesus. Third, embrace with your whole heart, all of it, the one who made the stars and yet dwelt on earth to redeem you. Let's pray.